Hey everyone, this is Tom. Welcome to episode 12 of The Great Divide, part 3, and the final part of our Bruce Watson trilogy. I, I mistakenly called this episode 13 at the end of last episode, but this is episode 12. And uh, we're just going to jump right into it, as we always do. This is Bruce continuing his discussion about the Big Country official studio releases. And he's going to start talking about peace in our time. And we're going to go all the way up through driving to Damascus. So hope you enjoy it. Here we go. All right. Well, awesome. So let's move on to peace in our time then. And, yeah. um, you know, the, the the big album for you guys in, in a lot of respects, it, some some don't like it, some love it. It's kind of one of those albums that. I'm on my album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm on my album. Let me start by asking you about what led up to the peace in our time album. And that was like these these mythical to big country fans, REL sessions, because yeah. you guys cranked out some. Just incredible songs, I think, in that period. I've always said that if if you would have, you know, taken those songs to a producer and polished them up or whatever, it could have been the best big country album ever, at least from my own opinion. Yeah, well, um, for, for once in our career, we had a bit of time and obviously gained a bit of experience and a bit of um, cash as well to have that luxury. Where <clears throat> we could take a little bit of time out and go into... REL Studios in Edinburgh. I think it's what stands for Radio Edinburgh Limited, I think it is. Okay. Um, and we did have a little, we had the luxury of time. Um, in fact, I'm sure we did them quite quick anyway, you know, it was, everybody was brimming with ideas. Again, that was a an album that was more of a, a group effort. Mm. Um, so everyone was um, brimming with ideas. Uh, got into the studio and I, mean, I don't know many songs we demoed possibly about 15. Wow. Um, and it was around the same time we were doing things like Made in Heaven and all that kind of stuff. Listen now, there's no time to explain. In your such a short time, I will be here again. If you hear my voice in the darkness, you hear my words on the rain. Don't be afraid, it only says you did not wait in vain. The studio engineer there was a guy called B Gal, B E E G Al, Al. He always wore this T-shirt that had Big Al, and he was a, a lovely guy, a real character, and we got on great with, with, with him, you know. And it was one of those things that everything clicked, clicked into place. And then we went out to Hollywood. Exactly. <laughs> and off. Oh, that's that's kind of what I was getting to. I mean, when when you were doing those REL songs, did you feel like these were going to be the new album at the time that you were doing it? Well, yeah, I mean, we just thought, well, that's it. These, these are the songs. Obviously, some of the songs got used. Right. But, um, there was other new ones that we, we wrote out there. Um, it's not my favourite album. It's got a few key tracks that I do like. I've got a few other tracks on it that are just, you know, I just thought, well, some of those songs that we wrote back at REL were so much better you know yeah yeah but we were um, we got signed to Reprise Records Mo Austin and uh, Lenny Wonka and we wanted to be good boys <laughs> you know we'd you know we'd always had sort of troubles with record companies in the past and stuff like that so we thought well this is a new company you know let's be good boys we'll just do everything they say you know 
How does that process work when you when you present them with those songs? I mean, for example, like uh, you know, you're bringing in a song, for example, like Over the Border or Christmas Island or or whatever you did in those demos. And do you, do you actually play them for record company people, and then they just tell you, ah, we like this, we don't like this, or is that something that the producer decides? No, it was kind of the producer Peter Wilf. Who's I love Peter Wilf. He's a great, great guy, and he's a great producer. But I just don't think he was the right producer for Big Country. Yeah. Um, a, he had never seen the band live, you know, whereas people like Robin um, Steve Lally might have obviously, you know, been at shows and stuff like that and knew what the band were about beforehand. But with Peter, uh, we were just a, a new thing, you know, and he had his ideas about how we should sound and, you know, but we were just good boys and just kind of went along. I found it really weird. I mean, take it for instance, 13 Valleys, which is a song where Stuart plays the guitar at the start. I come in later on with the mandolin. But it's a simple song, and Stuart's just playing, starts off in A. It's like a typical turnaround, simple guitar picking thing that anybody could kind of play. It's not big country sounding, it's just a standard guitar right. sequence of chords. He got Stuart on that track to record all the strings of the guitar onto the Synclavia. And then, well, Peter, Peter it's not, that's not Stuart playing on that, that's Peter Wolf playing the keyboard. That is, that's only Stuart's guitar sampled. It's actually wow. Peter playing it on his piano keys on his Synclavia. And then what, what he did was, he got Stuart to play the part, but not play it, if you see what I mean. He didn't, he just recorded the squeaks of the guitar strings, you know, so. <laughs> you know, that's just the way it was back then. It was everyone was after a complete separation. Uh. You know, a couple of things I did where I, they said record a chord into the Sinclair and I think it was the start of time for leave and they had all this backward stuff going down, you know, and. Yeah, yeah. Playing individual strings and then he would just play them on his, or his Synclavia. And it was, a, it was, I enjoyed it, you know, there was multi but the end product was, it didn't sound like Big Country. Yeah, I mean, I liked it too. There are tons of things I love about Peace in Our Time, but yeah, it, it, from a fan's perspective, it was a, it was a bit of a shock. And Yeah. yeah. It was too, just sounded like a different band. Yeah. All together, but obviously, Peter was going for, I get a bit like Dave Bates, well, he was going for the, the hit, the radio-friendly thing, and to be honest, the album, and the singles just did absolutely nothing in America. Right. And, um, I, kind of, I think it kind of distanced a lot of fans in the UK and Europe. From the people that I, you know, were fans along with me, I remember that was the album where some of them said, uh, I don't like this direction, and they kind of yes. faded a little bit. And a, a couple fans wanted me to ask this, Bruce, uh, and this is something that I was always interested in, too, because when I first heard King of Emotion, I, I remember hearing that on the radio, and I had no idea it was big country. And I'm shocked. <laughs> it, it did. I, I was I was in college at the time in America, and they played it, and I didn't know it was big country. And the reason that I didn't recognize it was because Stewart's voice sounded so different to me. Yep. Did he get some kind of uh, direction to try to to lessen the his accent or his Scottish in, in inflection to 
I don't want to say to sing more American, but I mean, it, it sounded like he was doing that almost. Yeah, I don't think so. I just think Stuart progressed, you know. I think when you've done so many albums, you obviously, hopefully you get better at your trade. Um, you end up playing guitars. When you did your first albums, your first recordings, a lot of the guitar playing and the vocals are kind of, that is new to you, so you're quite naive and you're trying, trying to find your voice, whether it be your vocals or your guitar. And right. I think after all the experience that Stuart's had, he just fell into that, you know, became more confident with his voice. Um, and I think, obviously, you lose something along the way, you know, but I just think, even in later albums, Stuart's voice is it's a different voice altogether from the Cross Against Steel Town. Yeah. It just it sound, probably sounds more palatable on the radio or, or whatever, but I don't think Stuart was actually told to sing in a certain way. You, you couldn't tell Stuart anything, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, one of those kind of guys. You, mean maybe, you could maybe, somebody could maybe say something or suggest something, and they went out of the room and was like, I'm not listening to that crap, you know, I'll do it my way. I don't think he went for any sort of vocal training. He may, be, he may have done, but I don't think he did. Lots of fans that wondered about that because it happened so distinctly starting with Peace in Our Time. It was like a big change for that album, specifically. Right. But there you go. I guess it's just one of those things. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Anything. I just think as you move on, you kind of, you know, you, you get better at what you do and you, you kind of sound a bit more professional or whatever. But you do lose something along the way. Okay, uh, I just want to go back to the production uh, one more time. I mean, you pretty much said it uh, now as well, but uh, there's also been quotes in the past and comments about whether working with Peter Wolf, whether he was the right man for the job. And, and I was just wondering, uh, during the recording, uh, did you have any thoughts about the direction? Did it feel right, or was it more realized at the end that, oops, this, this, this isn't what we were hoping for? To be honest, we were, it was kind of a bit like the Rottles, we were too busy having a good time. We were out in LA for three months, you know, and it was, <laughs> you know, and I'll, Peter didn't work the weekends, which, and the old cash, you know, it's like when you're in the studio, every penny's a prisoner, you know. But so, Peter, uh, so are you what? saying that LA is more fun than Stockholm? No. Oh, what? Cheap <laughs> 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 off. It was definitely cheaper. So we had a lot of time on our hands at weekends and we were sort of tourists, yeah. you know, and doing the old, you know, going out and hanging out on the strip and doing that sort of rock and roll thing. Yeah. But, um, I don't know, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> the question was more if you realized in hindsight that the album sound wasn't what you set out to do or whether you had any alarm bells during the process. Yeah, we just, we just kind of, like I said, we wanted to be good boys and we went with it and did everything the, the company yeah. said. Right. Um, <laughs> looking back, it was, you know, we, we, we could have stopped at any time, but we were kind of caught up in the whole LA thing. We were having fun. <laughs> Peter Wolf produced the, the new LP. Um, I'm interested to know why, why you, you chose him to, to work with. He's, he's worked with uh, Starship and I think uh, the Jay Giles band as well. No, no, uh, this is a mistake. People have, have, uh, have, have misconfused it. There's two Peter Wolfs. Oh, right, right. okay. The Peter Wolf that we work with is a classically trained pianist from Vienna. <laughs> and uh, he is the guy who worked with Starship as well. But he's just such a brilliant, off-the-wall genius musician that uh, 
as soon as I met him, I, I immediately wanted to work with him. He's got a, a great attitude, he's a great enthusiast. He's very much like people that we've worked with in the past, like Steve Holly White and like Robin Miller and as much mm -hmm. as that. He's a great fan of music, he's interested in all different types of music and really gets into people and atmosphere and, and he's a real great person to work with. Mm. So, so um, Mark, am I the first person to make that mistake of actually no, <laughs> thinking no. it was the Peter uh, Wolf? We, we did a month of uh, uh, interviews in America and everyone thought it was a Joe Giles Peter Wolf. Right, right. It was a constant correction. Uh, so how long ago were you in America? How many, how many weeks ago? Um, uh, a month ago? Yeah. Six weeks ago? Yeah. Listening to the LP, it sounds very much geared towards the American market. Was that deliberate on your part? I don't think so. I mean, people have, have said this to us, and to be quite honest, it's actually the most live album we've ever done, you know. Mm. For the first time we were actually playing very much as a band in the studio. Previously what we would do, would I would do a guide guitar and then uh, just do a verse of the song just on guitar. Then Mark would lay the drums down and we'd build on that. But this time Peter encouraged us to play very much as, as a band in the studio, you know. So, And I think it suits us to do that, you know, because it means that when we take the songs out to do live arrangements, it's, it's very easy mm. for us to, to, to communicate the songs properly. Plus a lot of the material that we recorded this time we had actually done live before we went to record it, which I think makes a big difference for us, you know. I think it makes it, the whole thing sound much more cohesive and much more expressive and lets us uh, keep the arrangements very simple. We, we let the song come across. We certainly did much less overdubs mm. because we, we did it live. Uh, did the sound of the album more come from Peter Wolf's natural favouring that kind of sound, or did you sense that? Uh, there were directions pushed down from uh, the big suits. No, I mean, it was definitely a Peter Wolf album, you know, definitely. I mean, there are songs, without a doubt they are, our big country songs, but it just sounded like it was recorded by another band that's not called Big Country. That, that's perfect. I mean, that's how I felt when I listened to it. I, re I remember when I when I finally got to the track Peace in Our Time, I thought, okay, now this sounds like Big Country. Yes. I was so happy to hear those guitars again, but uh, but yeah, I got to say that there's I was disappointed at the time because I wanted you know I was so such a fan of the the earlier sounds, but I got to say I, there's a lot of peace in our times production that I really like about it. I mean, uh, even in high, yeah, I mean there's an there's an airiness to it that's really worked. I think. I mean, I think it's one of Mark's favorite sounding albums. Yeah, Mark always says that's the best we've ever sounded. You know, his, and, uh, his drums sound great on it. Yeah, and the actual overall sound of the album is brilliant. You cannot fault it. Yep. It's a great sounded record, but it's not the country. <laughs> right, right. And uh, Bruce, did, did that did that LA uh, environment? Is that what influenced your hairstyle at the time? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, apart from Stuart, I think everybody in the band had long hair. It just I don't know if it was a sun thing or. You know, we didn't go to the barber shop often enough, but it definitely got a bit rock and roll around about that period. Well, it's funny because there was a little record shop from my college where I was attending at the time, and I, I'll never forget, I, I knew the, the, the new Big Country album was coming out, and I used to walk up to this record shop, it was about a couple miles walk, and I would buy stuff and walk back to my dorm room. And I'll never forget opening up the Peace in Our Time sleeve and seeing that picture of you guys, and I just thought, what in the world has happened? <laughs> Welcome to America, boys. <laughs> That's right. yeah. yeah, and the same thing for me. When I was uh, ripping up uh, the tape, I, I bought it on tape first, and I saw the picture, and I thought, all right, you know, Bruce, we, we got some heavy metal there. <laughs> oh, Little did I know. 
Yeah, yeah that's right. A heavy metal hairdo. And it actually looked it looked good. It looked good on you. Mark had a serious mullet, and Tony had dreadlocks. I think for that period. <laughs> yeah. Just took it the, the the sort of cool, you know, the mid fifties Elvis hairdo on that one. You know. He looked he yeah. looked like the guy from Aha in that sleeve. I think. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, you know, Tony had dreadlocks and a T-shirt of him wearing dreadlocks. <laughs> oh, that's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I do believe Tony still has that T-shirt. <laughs> that was hilarious. He, did, he wore that on a light. He, yeah. did, he wore it in Isle of Wight. Did he really? Oh, that's that's awesome. One last question for you. I had about piecing our time, Bruce. Is um, you, know, you you guys have gotten a lot of flack. For the for those backing singers live. <laughs> oh man, I forgot about that. And I'm wondering, yeah, because, like, I was talking to John about this on a, on another time, and I thought the the backing vocals that you guys had on the Skids reunion were absolutely perfect. I mean, it was just added so much to that, and I always thought that if you had had that style of backing vocals for the Peace in Our Time tour instead of the type that you had, it would have worked much better. I mean, what what, yeah. what, was, what happened there? What was the reason for that, for those two? In the studio, we had the fantastic Mary Clayton came and did the, the backing vocals along with Ina Wolf, Peter's wife, and they did it on King of Emotion. Um, the Mary Clayton's great. She sung on Sympathy for the Devil, you know, the oh, Stones. Wow. Um, yeah. Great voice. And of course, it was like, well, we're going to go out to Russia and all these places and do the album, you know, so we need to get the backing vocalists in. None of us knew any backing vocalists, so I think it was either down to the record company or the management to find a couple of backing vocals. But yeah. backing vocalists and, you know, the girls turned up and they, they were very rock and roll. I mean, we used to call them the Four Marys for obvious <laughs> reasons. Um, uh, it was maybe just a bit too rock and roll, you know, kind of going, no, not heavy metal, but t- sort of turning into a, a normal sort of hard rock band, you know, and yeah. got a bit cliched. But, I mean, those girls are great singers, there's no two ways about it. I was going to say, they, they sounded great. It was it, For me, it was more like the dance moves they were doing during Thousand Yard Stare or something like that. <laughs> like, oh, God, yeah. 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 Josh Phillips on keyboards and it. I mean, yeah. I've heard some of, the, some of the mixes from those um, that time, and it's just so keyboard heavy and yeah. So the backing vocals it kind of sounded like a normal, average rock band, you know, and it not what we're about. Well, you live and learn. It's an interesting period, that's for sure. It certainly was. Last thing on piece in our time, Bruce, is what's your favorite track off that album? Soft Spot, King of Emotion, um, uh, Thousand Yard Stare, I think I'll go with. Uh, I love that choice. I love that choice. Beautiful song. Hey everyone, this is Tom cutting in here. We didn't get a chance to set this up when we were having the discussion with Bruce, but we're about to play an unreleased track from the REL sessions that we've just been talking about. This is an instrumental track. And uh, it's never been released before on any compilation. There might be a couple people who have this. I'm not sure. But I'm sure that the vast majority of you have never heard this before. This was sent to us by Bruce himself. He gave his blessing for us to play this. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. It's a very cool track. Fantastic quality. So here we go.
instrumental, if Stuart had did the lyrics on that, could have been on Peace in Our Time because it was the same era, you know. Well, I noticed a lot of a lot of pieces from When a Drum Beats on that, like the the, the bridge section from When a Drum Beats is in there, and uh, there are a lot yeah. of a lot of segments that ended up on that song. Yes, yeah, like, it was a kind of work in progress. It was kind of like the when we did the Great Divide in Wonderland, that was could have ended up like that, but we split it in two. And Stuart used the the Wonderland riff to go across my guitar. That I, when I did the original demo for Wonderland, it was just Mark and I that was in the studio. And then, but we had also did that kind of Great Divide instrumental. Oh yeah. And then Stuart went, I can take the guitar part from that song and <laughs> and it worked. Well, that, that's the theme. That's the theme to our podcast. So that yes, no. version. So yeah. Yes, yeah, you Mark going one, two, three, four at the start. Did you take that from Fuel to Fire? I, I did, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good ear. Okay, so let's jump into the No Place Like Home era, and you know we talked about that a little bit with Mark leaving the band. I think that was kind of a, a surprise for fans when they saw that Pat Ahern was playing with you guys. So I, I know Pat was a friend of Tony's, right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, and I know he didn't quite work out with you guys, but you, you did some really, you know, some interesting stuff with him. Save Me, Heart of the World, and some some tracks with uh, Tim Palmer. Yeah. Yeah. producing and I, I always thought that Tim Palmer did a really nice job with you guys sound wise I mean I don't know how you feel about it but I'm just curious how you felt about that period between uh, Peace in Our Time leading up to No Place Like Home and I had met Tim Palmer when we were out in um, LA doing Peace in Our Time and I got on well with him and Chris Sheldon who was his engineer uh, and I loved the stuff that Tim had did with um, Robert Plant he did um, a couple of albums with him Mm. And I really, I really liked the sound of it. And we got in the studio, I think it was Livingston Studios down in London, <laughs> and we did um, Heart of the World and Save Me. I was never a big fan of Save Me. I, I kind of just thought, kind of a bit like Look Away, sort of the same sort of rhythm, same tempo as Look Away. Yeah. Same time signature. I really liked Heart of the World. I thought that was, that was really a great song, you know? Um, and obviously, uh, part played on both of them. Um, uh, it was a kind of transition period. That was the period leading into the the greatest hits album as well. But right. But I mean, if you go back to No Place Like Home, I mean, that was weird because Mark came, Mark drummed on the album, <laughs> but he came back as a session player. You know, we hired them as a session because Mark was obviously busy with Midge and Fish and. You know, it was like, well, we need somebody to play drums on this. And, you know, obviously Mark was available for that, that period of time. And it was like, well, let's get into Rockfield and do it with Mark. Who, who better to play drums on a big country album than Mark Mazzicchi? I mean, as a musician, it's a great band to play in. It really is. Now we have these... Who said you were a musician, Mr. Drummer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hang around with him. You know what I try and do. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. And it was really weird because Mark turned up. It's the same old Mark. Great. But he was doing it as a session as opposed to being the group. <laughs> did, did that color his playing on the album? Because I, I, the, the, he definitely has a more subdued sound on that album, but yet the whole band is a little more subdued on that album. So I Again, mean, it's, a, it's a weird album. It sounds like four different bands playing on the one album. You've got tracks like Republican Party Reptile, which is real heavy-duty stuff with the slide, heavy guitars. Um, and you've got... Oh God! Give me, give, give me some titles from that album, quick. <laughs> uh, Dynamite Lady. 
Dynamite Lady, which sounds unlike anything that we've ever done before. I love that Stuart's, song, by the way. Stuart's voice differs on all the tracks. It's like one minute he is kind of American sound, and then other times he goes back into the old Stuart voice. And I mean, there's just those tracks just sound so different. like 70s rock there's a couple of tracks on it that sounds like it was recorded in the 70s yeah mm. uh, that was Pat Moran that produced that and I, I love Pat Moran I thought he was a great producer and I thought Pat worked out great with us great ideas sadly um, he's no longer with us either you know he yeah. produced like, everyone else and stuff as well Pat that's right and he did like Edie, Edie Brickell he did yes yep. yeah Pat was brilliant he just really focused um, kind of old school producer sort of like in the same vein as Chris Thomas um, very kind of 70s sounding as well but you know I just I love that I think he did stuff with a lot of as well in fact he did he did the big log I think oh wow okay I think Pat was involved with that that's a terrible name for an album eh? big log <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just uh, remember something from a country club magazine about drummers that you actually were very close to hiring Simon Phillips for No Place Like Home, but you got Mark in the last second. Is that true? No, it's completely untrue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's uh, that settles that. I'm sure you're making this up, Spine. You're just pulling <laughs> I'm pulling it out Make of my arse. <laughs> definitely not. No, okay. definitely. Not at that time. We, we obviously got Simon later on for the Buffalo Skinners, but at that time, no, definitely not. Well, let it me, seems a little strange, but there you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Bruce, about that album because what I always found interesting is that through <laughs> through a big country came out, and that was a you know the greatest hits album, and it was really successful for you guys. It seemed like it sold very well. Yeah. And then and then you came back with No Place Like Home, which was such a such a different sounding album from what people would expect from Big Country. Especially after Peace in Our Time, I mean, was there a was there a conscious effort to reinvent yourselves with that album, or did it just kind of the way it happened? No, just kind of the way it happened, and again, it was a collection of songs. You know, it's like it was just the album. The album was basically just a collection of songs. Yeah. And th- that was kind of it, you know. I mean, I think there's some really good songs on that album. I do too. I, I in fact, yes. I think you know the aforementioned Dynamite Lady is one of your one of the best tracks, I think, in the band's whole repertoire. I, I love that song. Beautiful People, I think, is great. I, I kind of prefer the original demo for Beautiful People. It's not like I've got a case of demo-itis, but it's, there was something about the, the original demo. that we, we changed it completely. Yeah, and a lot of those demos were so different. Yeah, I mean, the, the way we approached uh, Beautiful People was kind of... I think we were listening to a lot of the band at the time as well, you know, and we kind of approached it as if we were, you know, the band, you know, Levon Helm, Robbie Robertson kind of thing, you know? Right, right. Uh, you mentioned uh, it's a collection of songs, like every album is, but... Uh... 
much like peace in our time, I have to ask how much of the production is down to Pat and how much is down to record company interference, which there record seems to be more of on this one. Record company's got nothing to do with it. You know, they had nothing to do with that. They, they had an A&R, again, another A&R guy came in. Um, what's his name? Whatever his name was, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> Best forgot. And he came there, again, I don't think he was... Russ Conway, he was called, actually. I know that's the name of a famous um, musician, but this guy was called Russ Conway. Yeah, lovely guy. But again, I just don't think Big Country were high up in the list of his priorities. Yeah. Uh, so he came in and he made a few suggestions and we changed a few bits and bobs. Um, but it's just, again, it's a collection of songs. That's, that's all it is. I remember Stewart saying at the time that that he was really disappointed because he took uh, he took Kansas and and ships to the record company and he said they didn't even want them on the album, like he took the demos of those songs. Uh, I'm just wondering if if that's something that uh, that kind of difficulty in in getting what he thought were some of his best songs that he'd written in a while. Did, uh, did, did that color? I don't know if that's true because Stuart we never take songs to the record company. They were always done through the management. We'd send the tapes to the management, and the management would take them in, unless, of course, Ira took them in, and the, the record label maybe said that, you know, it's not for them. Okay. But, but Ships in Kansas are great songs, and I've got the demos here in front of me, and they were recorded at House in the Woods studio with Pat Moran playing drums on them. Oh, and wow. Really, the not not Pat Moran. Did I say Pat Moran? I mean, uh, Pat Hearn. Okay, all right. Pat Hearn playing drums in them. <laughs> I knew they were like just embryonic versions of the songs. It was the first draft. They were needing more work done to them, obviously. And I think the, um, the versions that we did on No Place Like Home are great. Obviously, we did ships with just um, piano and a synthesized string quartet and Stuart's vocal, but we did the a full band version of the song as well. I don't know if that ever saw the light of day. But when we, you know, skipping forward to the Buffalo Skinners, when we went back with Chris Briggs, he said, you know, they're, they're like two missing songs. You've got to re-record those songs. Mm. And because Chris knew a good song is a good song. But at the time, Phonogram, they just didn't, didn't see it, you know? Right. But right. songs, they were still at the early stages. Right, exactly. Okay, that well, that clears that up then. That's great. Um, okay, so uh, favorite favorite track off of this album? Give me some tracks. I, for sake. I'll, I'll give you the entire track listing. Let's see. Okay, okay. Can, Kansas, uh, Republican Party Reptile, Dynamite Lady, Keep on Dreaming, uh, Hostage Speaks, Leap of Faith. Okay, I'm going to go with the hostage speaks. Willie's just passed me this, the, the list and I've got on his iPhone. I'm going to go for the hostage speaks. I love that song. Fantastic song. Uh, I, love, I love hostage speaks because I'm playing a, an old Gretsch and we've got that corny sort of Roland drum machine at the start. And then it kicks in with Mark's real drums. Uh, I, I just like the overall vibe of that song, you know. And it, it was also what was going on in the world at the time, you know. And it still is too. It's a very, still a very yeah. timely song. Yeah. It, so I'm, I'm going to go with that one. Do you do you prefer the demo version of that over the album version, or how did you feel about that? The demo version was so so much heavier. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I like the demo version very much. It's almost got a glam rock kind of feel. It's got a kind of T-Rex vibe. Fingerpicking and playing guitar with a plectrum on, I think, the whole of that album. I don't think I used a pick, I was just using my finger, I was just experimenting, you know, and I was getting into that kind of almost Dave Edmondsy kind of, you know, pulling the strings and stuff. And that's what I did on the demo, and it, it, I kind of like that, you know. The past two years, Big Country have been recording their new album, Buffalo Skinners. They've also had a change of label from Phonogram to Chrysalis. We're going to be chatting to the band today, right in the middle of their current tour and finding out a little bit more. We've been through a situation over the past couple of albums where uh, people who were working with the group, uh, the guys who signed us to the record company had left and we were trying to get a relationship going with other people. Uh, they had one idea of what Big Country should be and we had a very different one. And I think when you're trying to start up a new relationship like that, you're quite willing to come and go with people. And it's only with hindsight I realised that, that any time I've let someone have that kind of involvement in the band, it's all it's done is dilute our own personal vision of what it is that we want to do. We've always had a very strong idea of what we feel the band is about, what we feel we should be doing. And I think that uh, with this record we've been able to do that. You know, we, We've been able to simply go and make the record that we want to make and then hand it over to the record company, which I feel is how it should be. That's how we used to make records in the past. Uh, I'm a great traditionalist, I believe that all you should do is set up the microphones and record the performance. That's, uh, that's what I do, I like to record quickly and, and very spontaneously. And really this record is the sound of that, it's pretty much uh, representative of, of what the way we feel we are as a group and we're highly delighted with it. You've changed uh, record companies since the release of the last album now, from Phonogram to Chrysalis. What was the reasoning behind that? It was shite. <laughs> <laughs> No, oh, they were garbage. <laughs> they were garbage. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll ask that question again. <laughs> what happened was um, I, I got to a point where they couldn't work with us and we couldn't work with them and it was just stalemate, you know? Were they trying to have too much of an influence on in how your records were going to sound? Or Yeah, well, the first two I don't know what they were trying to do. The first two records kind of were hits on their own, you know, because we were a new band and a new attitude and we did things slightly differently. Then it was almost like in order for the record company to, to keep the, the success level up, they all of a sudden tried to take over and say, "Well, look, we know what you do best. You, you know, do it the way that we." And, but they didn't have a clue, to be honest. Mm. And it just went downhill from then. And you know, we, we didn't lose interest, but the magic wasn't there for quite a few years. But uh, <coughs> um, signing to, to uh, Compulsion Chrysalis has been a complete and utter rejuvenation. A, a lot of people out there won't understand that, but uh, if you're working with people who respect what you do and, and want you to get on and do it yourself because they know that we could come out of the good center. We feel a lot freer. So Buffalo Skinners, I mean, this this was like an incredibly welcome return to form. Yes, it's, it's back to normal, guys, we're back, you know, thank you. <laughs> Exactly. I, I Again, I remember buying this CD. Uh, I had to drive an hour and a half to buy this because the only place I could buy big country CDs at the time here in America were in import shops. Oh, yeah. And, 
and uh, there was a great one, but it was far away. So I, I drove an hour and a half to buy it, and I did not have a CD player in my car at the time, so I had to wait till I got home to listen to it. <laughs> but uh, I, I remember I remember reading the lyrics in the car, and just the lyrics even struck me like, okay, the big country is back. You know, I can tell by these lyrics. Sorry. No, no problem. I'll tell you, I would like to be a passenger in your car, this. Read the lyrics. No, I, I I was parked when I read. <laughs> l- l- license and registration, Mr. Kirchhoff. <laughs> Uh-oh. You're next. You're cue, next. Cue the, cue the cops theme song. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? What was it like to be reunited with Chris Briggs again? And what was the overall feeling with the band after you'd gone through, you know, a couple couple albums of, I guess, difficulties with the record company? Now you had someone who really believed in you again. and. Yeah, it was just like the old days. We went down to Chrysler's Records and we saw Chris and he was... We did, we did the demos um, at a place called Audiocraft in Dunfermline. And uh, just the three of us, and Mark still wasn't there. Um, now, that was a drum machine we used on the demos, uh, which I've still got. Mm-hmm. And Chris loved the songs. Um, and like I said, he said, like, you know, Kansas and Chips, Forgotten Songs, get them on the album. Obviously, Mark Mark was out doing something with someone, and it was Chrissy's um, idea that we got Simon Phillips in, and uh, it just worked out good. It's one of, even though Mark's not on it, I would say it's my second favorite big country album. I think I would put it right up there as well. And it, you know, it's it's funny. I, it's hard for me to imagine, you know rating a big country album so highly that doesn't feature you know, the four of you but yet I forget that Mark isn't even on it because the, I mean, if, if there had to be someone to take his, his place Simon, I can't imagine anyone better than Simon Phillips I think and, Mark probably played the same thing I think you know I mean Simon and Mark are very they're, they're up there you know there's, there's not many drummers uh, in the UK that can that can touch those guys, you know, and I think Mark would have done exactly the same, apart from the Octoban start on um, What I Love, mm, that okay. was weird, that was really weird, I mean, we could not get that in time, I mean, Simon came up with this groove thing, and we, none of us could find one, <laughs> it's such a strange part, but it was really hypnotic and strange, but I love it. We sent Simon the, the demos with the drum machine, and uh, he's such a busy man, you know. Uh, he turned up at the studio and he was setting up his kit, and he he, he learned the songs that morning in his car, <laughs> driving across London to get to the studio. That's wow. how good he is, you know. Yeah, and uh, one very interesting thing with the drummer scenario is that Mark went to Pete Townsend, and Simon came from Pete Townsend. You basically just swapped drummers for that one. Yeah, I mean, Mark was again he was unavailable you know but towards the end there you know when Mark heard the album it was like I want my job back <laughs> uh, let's have you guys no it's okay we've got Simon Phillips <laughs> oh he's good right oh come on back you know again <laughs> Well, that, that's kind of, I'm kind of jumping a little bit ahead to the tour of the Buffalo Skinners, but I was always interested, you know, how did Mark, was there kind of a, a little friendly competition type spirit there with Mark? Because I'm sure that he was learning Simon Phillips' parts. He must have been thinking, you know, hey, I would have done this differently or I'm going to do this better than Simon. Or 
Nah, nah, Mark's not that kind of guy. Okay. I, I, I still think Mark would have played it pretty much like what Simon did. I mean, we just, Simon would go in and do, you know, get his drum set up and do a take and it'd be like, I think I've got it, you know? <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. We tried, we tried to do a song called, um, oh God, it's on, the, it's on the demos. It's one that had a drum machine on it. It's East World. We tried East World with Simon. Oh, you yeah. did? Oh, I would love it to hear work, that. It didn't work out. We had such a, a strict drum machine pattern where it was like almost a rolling snare thing. Mm. And we tried that with Simon, but it, it just, we ended up, we kept the machine on it, which I think ended up on one of the B-sides of where it is. And it just did not work out. Well, you know, we, we talked about that song on, on podcast, and Svein and I both agree that that's one song where the, the drum machine actually almost well, works better. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's part of the song. You know, the drum machine is such a syncopated part. Yeah. <laughs> we tried it with, I said we tried it with Simon, but I needed that drum machine feel to, to make it work, you know. Okay, I have to go back to the title track again, which is not on the album, so we have the same scenario as for The Crossing. Uh, why didn't it make it this time? Because it was a ballad, basically. We had ships on it. Again, we'd, we'd obviously been recorded ships, which was the almost like, you know, we'd always have a ballad or an album, like a chance or whatever, and we had ships on there. And the rest of the album was so heavy, we mm -hmm. just didn't, we didn't think the Buffalo Skinners would have sat anywhere on that album, you know, I just wouldn't have sat right. And we, we just kept it back and used it as a, a B-side. Yeah, great. It's a beautiful song. And the way that yep. you guys redid it on, on the Eclectic tour was really gorgeous. <laughs> Yeah, again, it was one of those songs that we never explored as as much as we should have done. It could have been in the set, yeah, kind of like a winter sky kind of thing, you know. It's you know we should have played that song more, you know. The one thing that was great about the Buffalo Skinners for us American fans is that you guys toured over here again, and I remember I saw you at the uh, at the Bayou on Halloween night in 1993. Um, oh. I remember that in Washington. Yes, Washington D.C. It was just a fantastic show, and it was it was packed. And it was great. I mean, I remember walking there at Halloween, and it was like to be greeted by this woman dressed up as Catwoman. You know the Michelle. That's right. And a guy just walking down the stairs in full clockwork Gordon's regalia, and he had it exactly like uh, Malcolm McDowell in the movie, you know, the, the same shirt and the little cufflinks with the eyes on them and stuff. Absolutely amazing. Oh, I that, that was one of my favourite times for a tour in the States. We were out in the States for a long, long time, and I loved it. It was great. Get on the tour bus again and watch World TV at the front window, you know? Oh, that's fantastic. And I remember that night because Stuart came out and said, uh, Happy Halloween. As you can see, we've come dressed as big country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you launch into all, all, all go together, and it was just... All go together was the number, that's right. Hi, how are you all doing? We're called Big Country, and we're from all over the place.
you surprised at how well received that tour was? I mean, because you hadn't played in America for so long, and, and there were so many fans that were starving to see you guys back over here, and it, you know. The, the tour was it was great because there was so much variety. I mean, that tour you could be in New York and or or New Jersey, you're playing at the Stone Pony, and then you you know you you, you go to another state and you're playing in a Prince's Club, and then you go to another state and you're you're playing at a big Oatmere a big Oatmere festival, and then you're doing big huge gigs, and then you're doing really small gigs. And I just thought this is great because it made every day so much different. Where you're not just going at the same, the same venue every night. It becomes a bit like a residency. And we were also exploring the, the acoustic side of things as well. Right. Because we were going at the radio stations during the day with the acoustic guitars and you know just doing different acoustic versions of our songs. And there was one gig I think it was was it Chicago or Detroit I can't remember now. The power just failed completely. Everything, okay. the backline, the PA just went off and it was like, oh, what are we going to do now? Oh, get the acoustic guitars out. And some of the songs we obviously knew, but some of it we were just making up as we went along. Uh, it was like a happy accident. It was really great and really cool. I'm just jealous you got to see them on that tour. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You know, I, I'm always hearing from the UK guys about, oh, I've seen Big Country a hundred times. Or, I've seen you guys. <laughs> I've seen you guys three times. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll take that. Well, Bruce, okay. uh, what, what's your... What's your favorite track off of Buffalo Skinners? I know I know that you had a heavy hand in a lot of these tunes, specifically Seven Waves, um, just which is a great song. So, what's your favorite? Um, I've got a oh, let me see, soft spot definitely. Chester's Farm. Mm. Um, oh my God! I'm gonna go for the one I love. Was that a, was that a cool moment playing that on the on the Tonight Show? Oh, Jay Leno. Yeah, Jay Leno show. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing doing it on the Jay Leno show. It's, it's weird when you go over to the States, especially at that time, you know, you're obviously watching um, American TV shows like the, the late um, like Conan O'Brien show. And right. You, you never saw anything like that in the UK. And obviously you're watching TV and you're seeing the, watching the Jay Leno show and that. And then, you know, a few months later, you're actually on it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we move in now to why the long face. We've got two more to go here, and uh, it's fine. I'll let you. I'll let you kick off the questioning for why the long face. Yeah, um, 
I just uh, thought I'll just ask a nice round question. What was the general mood in the band at this time, uh, following up from the Buffalo Skinners? Where were you sort of heading for? What was your goal with the album? Well, the mood was great because Mark was back. Uh, we were back to being mm. big country as a four-piece, you know, and camaraderie was there and we all got on fine. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's my least favourite uh, big country album, Why the Long Face. Uh, you know, it's got it's got some good songs on it, but again, it's you know, it's you, you want to get better every time, and I just kind of thought this the songs weren't weren't there, you know. There was, there was some good stuff like I'm not ashamed, and um, I actually like Post Nuclear Thought and Blues. That's my favourite song on that album, <laughs> only because it gives you a bit of relief. I mean, the, the whole album kind of sounds, it's two loud guitars, kind of very heavy sounding guitars, very over the top sounding compressed drums. Um, I've not really got much to say about this album. I mean, it's, it's got its moments. Thunder and Lightning, I like that. But uh, nah, no, not a big fan of that album, I'm afraid to say. Well, what happened with you guys? Uh, I know you guys left Chris Briggs, or maybe he, or maybe he left the company at this time. But it seemed like um, you changed record companies as well, didn't you? You went to Castle Castle Records. Yeah, I mean, I know that for a fact that Chris got the demo sent to him, and he just he came back and just said that, nah, you know, you need to do more work, and maybe maybe some of these songs, um, um, you know, what he was looking for. And looking back, I think he was right. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff on it like One in a Million, um, great song, you know, but there was too much of that all, you know, that heavy, distorted sort of thing going on, you know. I think at that time as well, Stuart had moved to America, possibly he'd moved to America beforehand, but it was, the, the demos were kind of disjointed, you know, it's like, Everybody was living miles apart, and you know it was always a yeah. hard getting everybody together, you know, logistically. Yeah. And when we were doing the demos, we could only it was only done in a certain periods of time, you know. Where maybe Stuart had told the following Monday they need to go back to America, or whatever, and you know, I just like I say, it's not my favourite album. Yeah. Got it's so. fine. Anything else for this? I don't have too much. I'll just say that uh, I like the album. Uh, I think... Uh, of course we do. We're big country fanatics. Yeah. <laughs> so, I feel like I have to come to defend defense when anyone criticizes, even one of those who made it. <laughs> so that, that's the toll of a fan. But uh, No, but it's, it's a very interesting time in big country because a lot seemed to be happening uh, sort of behind the stage, you know, with Stuart obviously moving to the US and... Uh, the market being very strange in the 90s. I see far bigger bands than Big Country really struggle to find their place and their niche in the market. It's always fun in the Watson household. The, the no, Soviets uh, were cutting into our, our yeah. line. 
can I can I break in here? Just 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 for maybe I don't know whether it's something you might may or may not want to discuss. It's just just my own little bit about the wide long face era. It seemed to be kind of the one time where they kind of drifted off. Not, not drifted off. Well, they just kind of started to uh, do a lot of covers. Uh, during that that period, uh, that's true. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know whether that's something you want to you want to talk about or not. Back yeah, to the interesting. wall. Interesting. No, that's good. I think we, we we got a bit bored with being big country and wanted to have some fun and uh, go and do cover versions of Daydream Believer and stuff just just for fun, just because we could. <laughs> saying when uh, when the Soviets invaded was uh, basically <laughs> that far bigger bands than Big Country were struggling in the 90s to find their niche in the marketplace. It was really strange and fashions changed almost overnight. Uh, first with grunge and then grunge even left and what was left and uh, what? Uh, how did you guys cope uh, with that? How did we cope with that? I mean different uh, bands coming and going. I mean yeah, yeah I mean, the, the market's changing and uh, basically the fashion's change. and I guess because yeah. it wasn't about fashion anyway, but... I think we kind of became like, I don't know, what people thought status quo had become, you know, like Uriah Heap or something, you know, it's just like old hat kind of thing, you know. And again, I think if we had, after the Buffalo Skinners, if we had maybe left it for a while um, and disbanded maybe for a year or so and got back, but because we did have a bit of success with Buffalo Skinners, obviously people want you to do the next thing and they want it quick. And I just think we we didn't push ourselves enough um, to come up with better material for that album. Yeah. I think it's, it's hard, to me it's half an album. You've got some great stuff like I'm Not Ashamed on there, you know. Um, fantastic song. 
Um, but you've got other stuff like Charlotte, which yeah, it's not really, you know, it's just a kind of jam sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. The, one, the one thing I'll the one thing I'll say in Charlotte's defense is, is that uh, I really loved the, uh, the the guitar break in the middle of that song. It always reminded me of. Um, in fact, I told Stuart this in Nashville once when I I spoke to him. I, um, it, it always reminded me of almost like it had an Angle Park type of feel, if you can believe that. Like, that first guitar break where it's like. I always, always loved that. As it, it was, it was a cool little nod to the past. But uh, yeah, yeah. And then there's all stuff like Blue and a Green Planet, which, again, the, the original demo was kind of interesting. And then the way we approached it, it kind of reminded me of that psychedelic first song, you know. Just, <laughs> right, right. You know, I just a, a bit throwaway. guys were with uh chris during buffalo skinners was that just like a did that deal end after buffalo skinners and you were trying to find a, a you you then ended up with castle and chris decided not to pick up pick no, you guys up it, again or i think it was only a two album deal i think we had the we did the obviously the buffalo skinners and then there was the was it safety net the live album yes yes that, okay that was compulsion as well and i think it was just a two album deal and um, chris had probably the, the option to go for another one but it wasn't for him. I mean, he heard the demos that we did at House of the Woods, and he really just said it's, it's not for him. Okay. Uh, he was wanting us to develop the songs further, but we didn't. <laughs> so there you go. Gotcha. Now that makes total sense. I okay, have a last one. Yeah, go ahead, Swine. Yeah, just just my final one, and uh, it's uh, sort of contradicting John's input earlier. This, this is about B-sides. Uh, on one of the You Dreamer CD singles, you have a trio of B-sides Ice Cream Smile, Magic in Your Eyes, Bianca, which uh, are more folksy and more Nashvillean and uh, quite a big change for the band, but very likable songs. I love those songs. Those were recorded um, up in Scotland. Um, And I love those songs. They're really, again, not something you'd expect big country to come out with. Mm. Um, Mark really got into the arrangements of these songs as well, especially with the vocals. kind of entry again don't sound like big country but they're good fun to play i love those songs so the band was quite positive to uh, moving more towards uh, i guess what most be- most people assumed stewart brought this from nashville and brought it to big country and had you guys play on his songs <laughs> but that's what not the case what song was that sorry uh still talking about the ice cream smile magic in your eyes and those kind of small countryish almost songs no they were, those were kind of from memory, I just think we got in the studio and it was like, right, let, let's do something, you know. I don't think they were 
from memory, I don't think they were written by one specific person. I think All right. Cool. It was the three or four of us in the studio. How do you rate the Driving to Damascus album, Bruce? I mean, is that something that you guys you felt really you feel really good about? I know it's uh, you know it's the last album, so obviously there's kind of a, a sadness to it as far as it being the last album with Stewart. And if you look at the yeah. lyrics, you can kind of sense a lot of the oh yeah issues I mean, that he was going through. But those lyrics are in black and white. There's there's no getting away from what he was going through. Whereas in the early days, Stuart always said his lyrics were open to interpretation, but. When you listen to somebody like somebody else and some of those lyrics, it's you know what's what's going on and what went down. It's yeah, laid in front of you. We were talking about some of even the B sides in the past, like a song called "Living by Memory," and it's it's almost one of the the one thing about you know a lot of big country songs is that there there always seem to be a little spark of of hope even in the darkest songs. And yeah. in some in some of these songs, it seemed like that spark was even gone. It was just like all darkness. Yeah, there was a lot of that going on at the time, you know. Um, stuff like that Stuart was writing in Nashville I don't, I don't know if um, some of those had co wrote well with people but you know there was a lot of the, the we, we, we did a lot of the demos out in Nashville Mark and I used to go and see Stuart quite a bit um, okay. and my last one we banged into you was it the Sutlery gig we did there when we saw you yes that was yep that was a Sutler gig yep yeah Sutler Sutler not Sutlery Sutler <laughs> um, exactly. so I think we did about four journeys out there um, Tony came out once and got arrested. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. I remember that. Um, I forgot about that. But he goes, I'm not going back to Nashville ever again in my life. <laughs> uh, and he was completely innocent. I must, must have uh, you know, he just kind of looked like he looked like a felon, you know. <laughs> was was he wearing his uh, Tony Butler dredge T-shirt? No, he was wearing the hat, and that 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 was the giveaway because the guy that was holding up the the gas stations. Was wearing a hat very similar to Tony's. Oh my! And should have, the cops should have just arrested the hat, you know. They've got to cop the hat from then on, you know. Are you listening to that, John? You take some notes there. <sighs> I'll uh, take the fifth on that one. Yeah, I, I, I keep forgetting I've got a cop in here. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that you're not watching this on video. I'm not going to tell you what we're up to this morning, time. Well, he, he, might, he might be. He might be. You never know. <laughs> okay, Paulie, just put your clothes back on. <laughs> You stole these secret cameras last weekend, didn't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so hot here with that fire, really. I mean, let's at least put our pants on. <laughs> <laughs> at, le- at least the pants, yes, at least. So we're talking about Damascus. Yes, and, uh, one, you know, some of these B-sides, you, you've, you've got the age-old question with all big country releases. I mean, you've got so many fans who think, who say, why didn't this make the album? Why didn't that make the album? So... I'll join I'll join in the chorus for a particular song and and uh that is Loserville. I always I love the long version of Loserville that you guys used to play before you kind of snipped it down in the in the studio. All right. Was that just a t- was that just a tune that was one of those casualties because of its length and and didn't really know what to do with it? No, again, it was one that we thought we'd, we'd set right on the rest of the album. You know, you, when you do an album, you want a bit of continuity there. Right. Um, which we, we never always achieved that. But on certain albums, you know, Damascus is one of them, like Buffalo Skinners, you know, it's 
there was a certain flow to the way the songs ran into each other. And if you stuck something like Loserville in there, it's just maybe a bit jarring for the listener, I think. And it's always good to keep these tracks back for um, different formats and stuff. Definitely. Yeah, I'm uh, interested in uh, the Ray Davis uh, connection. How did you start uh, hooking up with him? Um, Stuart um, got hooked up with Ray Davis in Nashville and they wrote three songs together, which was um, Devil in the Eye and um, Somebody Else. else. And there was a third song as well, Uh, the name escapes me, Um, but I never saw the light of day. And we went in the Conk Studios um, in London, Ray's place, and we demoed um, a few of the songs there as well. The last thing that I would have about the driving to Damascus period, because um, I know we've kept you here long enough, but I, I have to ask you about the whole fragile thing fiasco with the with the single charting, not charting, and not being considered. You know, was that something that that really it hurt you guys? I mean, or is that something that's been blown out of proportion with its? No, I mean, it, I mean, it's a great song, fragile thing. It sure uh, is. And it was at the time when Ian Grant was still the manager, but he, he, he put track records together, he bought track records, and he became the, the publisher, the manager of the record label, which is a complete conflict of interest anyway. Yeah. But he went out and got, got the packaging done and stuff like that. And to me, it looked like a bloody pizza box, this thing, you know? It was, <laughs> it was like something a, a child in school would do with origami, you know? Like the box popped up and... I think then the powers that be said, oh, it's too much of a gimmick. There's too many folds in the packaging. It's going to entice people to buy it. And like, you know, they'll only buy it if they like it, you know, because of the, the box that it's in. <laughs> right. Um, right, exactly. Just, you know, we, we knew that we could get Airplay, Radio 2, which was the big station that took over from Radio 1. And the people that were working with us uh, from that side of the business were, you know, this will definitely get Airplay and stuff like that, you know, but... It ended up getting banned, or not banned, but it got sales got knocked off or whatever because of the packaging, which we thought was just kind of petty. Right. Yeah, I, I always thought that too. It just seems so nuts. I mean, if, if you don't like the band and don't like the song, uh, a piece of packaging is not going to entice you to buy anything. So. I, mean, I mean, it's not as if you're slipping in $20 bills in it or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, would have, I would have bought that single if it had come in, you know, a, a piece of saran wrap so you know it didn't make any difference to me but um well so on anything anything else you have on driving to damascus i know we're kind of giving it the short shrift here yeah but, uh, no but uh, i think uh, we're approaching the end of the road there yeah definitely yep. uh, well bruce what's your favorite track from driving to damascus what i'm looking for is a perfect world one that I can share with my perfect girl. What I'd like to Bruce, we we can't thank you enough for doing this. I mean, you know, we had we had big plans and we had like, well, maybe we'll get him on for an hour or two and at most, and we'll we'll try to sh- shoot as many questions as we can at him. And he'll he'll never want to talk about every album in succession. So I did this yesterday. I was at the BBC, and we really took me across the BBC, and I had to do a, a similar kind of interview with a guy called Phil Cunningham. Okay, uh, and we were there for a long time, so that was like the warm up for this one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we kept you longer than he did. 
it's been great. It's, oh, um, good. it's great that you guys are taking time out to. I mean, you know more about it than what I do. You know. <laughs> I doubt that. It's like archivists. You know, you, you know, you know a hell of a lot. We are. It's, we're, it's great that you're keeping the the big company name alive. You know. Well, thank we you. Are. I mean. It's funny you should say that, Bruce, because uh, I think in one of the prior podcasts, I kind of mentioned that one of the conventions that uh, you joined along in the uh, uh, yeah, Quizmaster and uh, Gordon had that beat you. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I mean, Gordon's another, another man. He's got a lot of stuff as well, you know. It's, it's just amazing what you can remember. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I can't remember, you know. I, kind of, I, re- I remember all the early days like it was yesterday because it was new, new to me. And then you get to a certain level and it all blurs into one, and then the later days you tend to remember. But there's that middle area that I'm a wee bit forgetful of, you know. You, th- you think there'll ever be a book, Bruce? Do you have any I, interest in, in a book, I, or is that something? Yeah, I think it'd be great to have a book out there, you know. Um, and I, I've got a, a person uh, that lives locally that would probably. Called. Oh, he's just called. <laughs> I, I've got a person here that'd be the perfect guy to do it, you know. Fantastic. But yeah, I think. Uh, I think a certain chemistry, the book that came out, that was probably too early in our careers to bring a book out, you know? Right. But, you know, there's people nowadays that have been on the X Factor for 10 minutes and they've got their own out there, you know? <laughs> a certain chemistry was great, though, especially in the in the pre-internet days when you were starving for information about, about you know, your favorite bands. And I certainly enjoyed that quite a bit and still do. So, Well, I mean, Bruce, we just want to, uh, you know, the, the reason that we are such fanatics as we are, and if you indulge me to be just a little bit melodramatic here for a minute, I mean, is because the music that you have been a part of creating has meant a, a huge amount to us and to our lives and to the people who listen to this. And yeah, I, so, I, mean, I know, ex- exactly. And, and yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, you what you've done and your part in creating this music has really made a difference in people's lives. And it's uh, it's very appreciated. And what you're doing now is is uh, is even more appreciated. And yeah. the name that, you know, keeping big country going is is fantastic. And we are firmly behind it, and we, we're proud to do our part to, to keep it going. Yeah, I'm really super excited. Really super excited. That's great. I mean, we could have changed the name if we wanted to, you know, but it's, you know, what's the point in doing that? No. You know, it's, we could have changed it to Angle Park or something like that, but, you know, it's, nobody's heard of it. Exactly, and you guys have spent your lives building that name up, and, and yeah. you, you deserve to use the name, and... and uh, Everyone in the band, I think, has has got some connection to the to the band from the past. So I mean, it works yeah, out beautifully. Like I said, it's not a bunch of session musicians, you know. It's got to be the right people, you know. When Tony announced his retirement, it was like, again, it was like, well, what are we going to do next, you know? And Derek, just everybody, apart from Mark, Mark had never really met Derek, but Mike and I knew Derek, and Jamie knew Derek, and like I said, he's he's uh, my twin, whether he's the evil twin or the good twin, I don't know, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely works with Derek. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, the, the last question I have for you is, you said that Buffalo Skinners was probably your second favorite. Just curious what your first favorite album is. Oh, The Crossing, without a doubt. That's what I would figure. Great. Because uh, it was new to me at the time, you know. It was. I mean, I'd, I'd done the album once with Chris Thomas, and that got aborted. Um, but, you know, the first time it happens, you know, to me, it's, I remember every minute of it, you know. Well, Bruce, we're gonna let you go, and uh... so soon. <laughs> <laughs> He's never gonna to want to come back. Now. Uh, no, I know. Well, I, you know but, uh, but I hope maybe we can do this again once the album is out. 
Yeah, we'll definitely do it again. I mean, are you, how many more podcasts are you going to do? Is this the last one for? We, a we have we have no we have no limit. We 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 tend to do one about every month. All and, right. And uh, so we we come up with different topics. You know, we we. Uh, so you got a few months worth in the can now. Yeah, we, yeah, we got a, okay. we got a couple it's months fun. worth. Well, hey, you you guys have a great weekend. Okay, no, that was great fun, guys. I really enjoyed that. Great weekend. Oh, thank it's you. almost over over there. Cause <laughs> that's, that's right. It's, it's now completely dark outside. <laughs> well, we get, we, get, we get to set the clocks back this weekend, so I, I, I've got yeah. an extra hour. Brilliant. <laughs> I'll be in touch. I'll be in touch. Thanks, Bruce, and best to you and everyone else. And uh, you too, Willie and John. Talk to oh, you yeah. soon. All righty, then. Shot! Okay, so that's it. Episode 12, the final part of our Bruce Watson trilogy. Wow, um, what, a, what a great series this has been for all of us. And, uh, and just as fans, I mean, we've enjoyed listening to it, hopefully as much as you have. I mean, I really love just listening to this and hearing Bruce talk about these things that I had not known before. Hopefully a lot of new information was presented here to, to most of you. So thanks again to Bruce for all the time he took to do this. I mean, you know, what, what can you say? Just an incredible guy, incredible generosity of his time to to do this for us and uh, we really appreciate it thanks to sandra jamie everyone else who helped make this happen willie welder and of course to john govea the great john govea who hosts these uh, podcasts on his page and is incredibly helpful and just a great contributor to this podcast behind the scenes and occasionally on the air and he'll, he'll be on with us at, at future shows too so thanks to you john and uh, if you want to give us some feedback send us an email to bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com you can also visit us on our facebook page just go to facebook search for the great divide big country podcast and you can also visit the website of the podcast at bigcountrypodcast.com and finally we are also now available on itunes which is huge for us so if you want to listen to this through itunes just go to itunes go to podcasts and search for the great divide big country podcast thank you so much for listening and hope we all have a great 2013, and let's all hope the Mayans were wrong. I'm saying that they are right now. And uh, we'll be back in 2013. We'll be back with episode 13 soon, and don't know what it will be yet, but uh, hopefully some more surprises will be coming, and some, it, looks, it looks like it's shaping up to be a great year for big country. So thanks again. We'll talk to you soon, and hope you enjoyed this trilogy. Take care. Only just put your clothes back on. Let's at least put our pants on.